Well, we're glad you guys are here. We have been getting so many reports of people down, like down, confirmed flu and stomach virus and so bummed about that. It's the season. I hope you guys are staying well. So I want you to go ahead and turn to Matthew 14, if you would. Go ahead and turn there on your device or in your Bible, okay? This is a very uh, well-known and often preached on passage of Scripture, Matthew 14, 22 through 33. Um, it's a famous scene between Jesus and Peter. It's some interaction, and when we start reading about it, it may be very familiar to you, or it may be the first time that you've heard about it. I'm excited on either way. So if, this is, if you're not familiar with the Gospels and the Bible stories yet, I'm super pumped that you're going to hear one of the coolest in the Gospels. And I pray that tonight we'll have a fresh perspective of an account that can sound very familiar to us, and maybe we've heard a lot of teachings on it. But as we learn to make every effort to add, that's our theme for this year, we want to learn from and study the life and letters of Peter. So we're, Tony's been in First Peter, and he asked me to teach this week, and this is one of my fa- all-time favorite accounts of Peter. And before we get there, before we get into Matthew 14, I want to recap a couple of things that are happening. Let's put it in the context because we're going to read the full scripture here. But what is going on and what we know about Peter thus far, and it doesn't take much to know this about Peter, is that he's a passionate man. He is passionate, if not impulsive. I think we kind of like that about Peter, don't we? He's a little reckless. He's a little wild, kind of untamed. And there's something about him that we just really like him. He's kind of the the blue-collar, salt-of-the-earth. He's a passionate guy. And we kind of are a little on edge about his impulsiveness. Like, what's Peter going to do? What's he up to? And we can kind of relate to that a little bit. We also know at this point in the story, in the gospel, that Peter has been sitting under the teaching of Jesus. He was called to be a disciple, and he's been traveling around with them, and he's sitting under his teaching. So the word that became flesh, the word that's held all things together, that was there in the beginning, came, became flesh, and he's teaching. And he's teaching in parables, and a couple of chapters before, he was teaching the famous Sermon on the Mount, or what we know as the Beatitudes. And Peter's sitting under this teaching, okay? And the word of God is, is true, And it's doing what it says that it does in Isaiah. It's not returning void. It's going deep, and it's gone deep into Peter's heart as a disciple. He's being discipled right there at the feet of Jesus. Can you imagine? So cool. We also know that Peter, along with the other disciples and many in Israel, had been witnessing firsthand some of the amazing miracles of Jesus. This dude has a front row seat, okay? Not only a front row seat, he's sort of actively involved in these miracles, And he's passionate about it. It's safe to say that he's feeling empowered at this season in his life. He's stoked. He's probably in like major revival. You know, it's like coming home from Gateway Student Conference, right? You're like, I can change the world. Or come home from camp or some kind of conference and you're like, yeah, you're just so pumped. And he's pumped. This is where he's at. He is stoked. He's excited. He's empowered. At this point... And the title of my message is called Little Faith and Big Doubts. This is going to make more sense to you in a minute. And I want to read this whole passage to you. We're going to read it through the entirety, and then we're going to come back and unpack it verse by verse, okay? So immediately after this, that Jesus had just fed 5,000, and it says in the verse ahead of that, in verse 21, it says 5,000 were fed that day in addition to all the women and children. So some scholars believe upwards of 15,000 people 
have been fed that day. Major miracle, five loaves and a couple of fishes. Okay, it says immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake. They're on the Galilee. And while he sent the people home, after sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified, and in fear they cried out, It's a ghost! But Jesus spoke to them at once, Don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over at the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and he began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshiped him. You really are the son of God, they exclaimed. Let's pray really quick. Lord, we thank you that just as the rain and the snow goes forth and it accomplishes something, we ask that tonight our hearts would be penetrated by your word. And if maybe familiar story and encounter tonight we'll see with fresh eyes. It'll go right to the place, the very place in our hearts that have needed this, that have needed this answer, that needed this story and this encounter. Because Lord, we do want to make every effort to add. And we want to grow in our knowledge of you, our Lord and Savior, So give us wisdom tonight and revelation of who you are in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. So let's unpack this, all right? Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back in the boat. How many of you guys have ever hosted a Thanksgiving meal with a lot of people in your house or a party? Yeah, you you know the feeling. You fed a lot. You're glad they're there, but you're real glad when they've left, (laughs) right? And you're just, you, just want to, you just need a minute. And I love this fully human aspect of Jesus. A verse earlier, he's fully God, right? He's just multiplying the stuff. And he has this, such a human moment in his life. He's like, I need to go have a minute to myself. And, but he, said, he says he immediately sends the disciples in the boat. He needs to get them out into the lake because he's got an appointment to keep. You see, there's been a storm that's been forecasted, and he needs the disciples out in that storm. If they hadn't have left immediately, who knows, being the seasoned fishermen that most of them were, they may have been like, hey, wait a minute, there's dark clouds, maybe we shouldn't go out. But Jesus is like, yeah, y'all need to go, 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 get out on the boat, go immediately. And while they're out there, the storm comes up, and they exhausted themselves fighting the heavy waves. It always seems to be the middle of the night, doesn't it? 3 a.m. is what it says here. And that might be familiar to some of you. It's funny how we can all day, all day keep things away, but suddenly we're relaxed. We go to sleep and we spring out of bed 2 or 3 in the morning. And we can exhaust ourselves rowing against the storms of our thoughts and the, the panic and the anxiety and the fear that can come out of what seems nowhere, Right? 
Just in that alone, we can identify. But he comes on the scene, and and I'm reading out of the NLT. He says, don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. But I love the NAS. Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. I love that. It's I. Don't be afraid. You see, Jesus didn't come to his disciples in this moment, in this raging storm, to trouble them. He didn't come to his disciples to make them afraid. And so he knew he needed to immediately comfort them. He was coming, he was keeping an appointment, and he wanted to comfort them. And he comforted them with the words, I am here, it is I, and don't be afraid. And I started thinking about that. My message really isn't about fear, but I couldn't skip over this as I was preparing it. Just as a little mini sermon inside of a sermon and this idea of fear. And how there's two good reasons for us to put away fear. There's a preeminent reason, and then there's two good reasons. The preeminent reason why we can put away fear is because Jesus is on the scene. He's with us. He's like, it is I. I am here. Fear not. So above any other reason, that is reason enough to not fear because Jesus is with us. If you know him and you call upon him, he's with you. But there's two other reasons that you can put away fear. One reason may be that the problem is it nearly as bad as you might have thought? Perhaps you're afraid because you might have just maybe a little bit exaggerated the danger. Maybe just a little bit you overthought it. Just a little. Can anyone identify with that? Like maybe you went way further than worst case scenario. You went just, you just snowballed. You overthought it and you've created more than one worst case scenario. You've, you have found every probability known to man of what could happen. So maybe he's saying, don't fear. It's not as bad as you think. You've definitely overthought it. But another reason why you can put away fear is that even though the problem is real, was this storm real? Were these waves real? They absolutely were. And we all can be facing some real problems. Some of you guys, and Tony and I have the privilege of knowing this, of journeying with you. You are facing real problems in your life. Real hurts, real struggles, and real storms. And so Jesus says to that, yeah, maybe there's things that we've exaggerated the peril, we've exaggerated the danger. But in, he says, do not fear. It's because he says, listen, I've got a greater solution. There's help at hand. You don't have to fear. There's a solution, and I have it, and it's for you. So he says this, take courage. And then Peter, seeing that it's Jesus, okay, feeling pretty sure about it, in this zeal that we love about him, in this impulsiveness that we love about Peter, he says, he calls to him, Lord. He's getting up, he's going. Can you imagine? He's over on the edge of the boat. I don't know about you guys. I don't know the last time you've seen somebody walking on water and the feelings that that's evoked in you, okay? But it evoked something in him, him, just him, just in Peter, He went to the edge of that boat and he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. He didn't say, tell me to come swim out to you, did he? Is that what he asked? He said, tell me to come walking on the water. He's like, I want in on that action right there. I was just a part of multiplying these loaves and fishes. I want in on this right here. The rest of them, I don't know what they're doing, but I love what Peter was doing. That's some remarkable faith. We don't know what prompted him to ask Jesus hey, call me out to walk on the water with you. But we do know that it was remarkable faith. And you know what? It was reasonable. 
That was a reasonable thing. You know how we know it was a reasonable thing for him to ask? Because of Jesus' response to him. Did Jesus say, no, I don't think this is the place for you, Peter. Only I can walk on water. He said, yes, come. I love that. Yes, come. So Peter walks out on that water. And it says that the winds, he feared the wind. And I read this quote, I loved it. As such is human nature often achieving great things and at fault in the little things. Listen, he has an epic moment of sheer greatness. He is a man walking on water, okay? And here this is. He, he walked on the water, but he began to fear the wind. And human nature achieving this great thing. He steps out in faith and he achieves this great thing, but in, at fault in the little things. He took his sight off Jesus, right? And it says that he began to sink. But Jesus was there and he rescued Peter. And once he did, it wasn't until he rescued Peter that he began to speak to him about his little faith. This was the little faith that led to the doubt and the distraction that made him sink under the wind and the waves. It made me think of a picture. And we have it up here. I, the, when, since I've seen this picture I've had it as a screensaver. And you can see that this is from Peter's perspective right here, okay? He's clearly under the water if you can't make this out. I know it's hard to see it in here. It's kind of impressionist. You can't quite see. Peter, Peter's under the water at this point. This is the moment of sinking. The great moment's over. He's focused on the winds and the waves, and Jesus, he, but he cries out to Jesus, and Jesus' pers perspective here is Jesus reaching down. And what I love about this picture, not just that it's under... It's from the perspective of Peter looking up at Jesus. But I love the look on Jesus' face. You need to pull it up on your phone sometime and try to get a closer look. I think that pastors have taught this and we, the impression that we've had over the years of this passage of scripture is that maybe Jesus was angry. He's questioning, like he's disappointed. Maybe he's frustrated in Peter's lack of faith. But I don't see that in this picture here. You know what I see in, the, in that picture? I see... I see joy. I see a sense of pride. And I also see some humor in that face. Like, oh, dude. Like, come on, that was awesome. You had it for a moment. You were experiencing it for a moment. And can you imagine what the sight, to behold that sight of Jesus and Peter, I think so often that we have this idea from this moment here, that Jesus turned Baywatch uh, lifeguard all of a sudden and that he had to kind of sink in the water to get him out. I don't, know what, I don't know if you've ever filled in the gaps between the moment that he's sinking to the moment in a second that says he got him in the boat. I don't know where you were in your imagination when you've read this and thought about it because I get, I get movies in my mind. And it's real easy to think that he's kind of rescue swimmering him. Keep your head up. Can you imagine? He's got his arm out. I should call a boy up. Come on in. Jesus is swimming with one arm to the boat, dragging Peter behind him. You know? I don't know if you've ever filled in that space in your imagination between Jesus reaching out and them getting into the boat. But I get the picture that they're hand in hand walking back to the boat. That Jesus didn't sink down in there. He elevated Peter back up. He said, come back up on the water. Come back into that greatness, little faith. It reminds me, I grew up riding horses, and I was a barrel racer in my, in my younger days. Probably never thought that, would you? 
And I had a pretty obstinate horse. It was a paint horse. His name was Tudor. And there were days he did not want to barrel race. He didn't want to do it. And I'd try to warm him up. We had barrels set up in my backyard. We'd go to the an arena at the stables. And I'd try to get him warmed up. And he has bucked me off more times than you could possibly imagine. Right out in the middle of all of it. Just bucked me off. And without fail, every single time, my parents would say, get back on him. And I'm mad, and I think I'm hurt. Not quite as hurt as I really am imagining that I am. I've never got sent to the hospital, to my knowledge. But they're like, get back on him. My dad would be like, get back up on that saddle. You need to, one, show him who's boss. Because it was a battle of the wills every day that I rode him. But also, they wanted me to remember the victory and the success and the courage and what it felt like to be back up in that saddle after getting bucked off. And that's the feeling I get here. And Jesus has said, come on, Peter, come back up. Let's walk back to the boat. Can you imagine that scene walking hand in hand upon the sea? And it wasn't until he rescued him that he spoke to him about his little faith and the littleness of his faith. And I love this. Spurgeon says this. This was such a good picture. He said, you know, there's only one word in the original phrase for O thou of little faith. The Lord Jesus virtually addresses Peter by the name little faith. In one word. Somehow in our translation, we, we have it saying, O ye of little faith. But he's actually saying, come here, little faith. Like, come here, little boy. Come here, little faith. Let's talk about this. What happened? He's such a good teacher in that moment. He didn't discourage him and he didn't rebuke him. I love, that's why I love the look on the face. He's like, come on, let's learn something from this. What did we learn from this today, Peter? What did you learn about me? What did you learn about you? And it made me think that there are a couple of things. There are some strengths of little faith and there's weaknesses of little faith. Because I'm so aware, I'm so aware that many of you feel like you have little faith. That you don't quite have the big faith that maybe some rock stars around you have. You're like, I want that kind of faith. Or I just don't feel seasoned in my faith. I feel young in it. And you can relate to that. Oh, yeah, I'm a little faith. And there are some weaknesses of little faith that we find right here in this account with Peter. Okay? So we know that little faith is often found in places where we might expect big faith. Jesus is walking on the water. You should expect some big faith right there. Right? He had just performed amazing miracles. Little faith is also far too eager for signs. If you, I just need a sign. And we fleece the Lord. How many of you guys are praying for signs all the time? You're like, I, I feel like I'm supposed to, but if that light turns green, before I, and if this song comes on the radio, and it, how many of you guys have played that? You know it. You know that. If I kick this and it hits that and ricochets, then I come over here, and Lord, that'll be a sign. So little faith is eager for signs. Little faith is very much affected by its surroundings. You might be identifying with this. Little faith is quick to exaggerate the peril. Those are some weaknesses of little faith. And we see that in P Peter. But can I encourage you right now, little faith, that there are strengths too. Right here in this story, little faith is true faith. You need to hear that. That little faith 
It's true faith. Little faith obeys the word of Jesus. Did Peter step out of the boat? Little faith struggles to come to Jesus. It was a struggle, but he did it. He got there. Little faith will accomplish great things for a time. It can accomplish some great things. Little faith will pray when it's in trouble. Boy, doesn't little faith pray when it's in trouble. Jesus, where are you? Little faith is safe because Jesus is near. So why did you doubt? Jesus asks the question, once Peter's safe? You realize that. He wasn't like, he didn't pull a kind of parenting thing like we might do. Natural parents. What were you thinking? <laughs> he gets him safe first, and then only once he asks, why did you doubt me? Man, what a good father. We can learn something from that. He only had to ask him once, why did you doubt me? I felt like we needed a good working definition of faith and doubt before we can really dive into the full context of this. So you can, this is on the board. Faith is an active confidence that God's promises are always true. It's just a basic definition. It's an active confidence that God's promises are always true. It's a glimpse of the majesty and awesomeness of God. So you've caught this glimpse of, of the majesty, the awesomeness, the greatness of God. And that glimpse can obliterate that nagging feeling of unbelief or doubt. That's what faith is. It's just, because you've caught this, this glimpse of who God is. And your faith may not be huge, okay? Might not be there, but we're making every effort to add to our faith, aren't we? We want to grow in our faith. We want to increase our faith. So your faith may not be huge. You might still have little faith. But faith affirms that tiny mustard seed confidence that God is more than enough to meet you wherever you're at in whatever challenge and in whatever situation. It's confident in it. But here's doubt. Doubt is a lack of confidence or assurance that God will keep his promises. It's interesting that we saw that play out almost simultaneously in Peter. He has this faith an active confidence that God's promises are always true. And then almost instantly, he has a lack of confidence or assurance that God's going to keep that promise. The more you pay attention to doubt, and I want you guys to clue in here, the more that you pay attention to the doubt, the less you're going to see God. The more he's focused on the things around him, the less he saw who the Lord is. But here's the thing. Doubt can never diminish God. Did Peter's doubt diminish Jesus on the water? Did it sink Jesus? Was he still standing there in the middle of that storm? Doubt can never diminish God, but it can limit your view of the one who has promised to be for you. It can limit your view of him. And it always undermines wisdom. It'll come and it'll undermine it. So why did Peter doubt? Maybe you've asked that before and you think it was the winds and the waves, but what was behind it? What was behind that? Why do any of us doubt? So to doubt literally means to be divided in two. That's what doubt means, to, to literally be divided in two. So you think about Peter. Maybe think about any doubts you've had when you felt divided in your thoughts and you felt some doubts spring up. Had Peter found God unfaithful to his promise? Had God suddenly become unfaithful? 
or maybe some former follower of Jesus convinced Peter that God couldn't be trusted. Or maybe somehow Peter's problem was so extremely difficult that it was certain God wasn't going to be able to help him. That he's defying all universal laws of God's faithfulness. Had God abolished his promises right there in that moment? Were they no longer valid? Had God changed? The answer is no to all of those questions. But he was divided in his mind and in his heart. And I thought, Lord, what are the things that cause us to doubt as believers? And it, maybe it's a list of this. Maybe it's you've prayed for something and it hasn't come to fruition. Maybe someone has influenced you. Maybe you've experienced hypocrisy that's turned you away or turned you against. But I think one of the biggest promoters of doubt, and I want you guys to listen, because this is a season that we have been intentional in our discipleship and in our growing in the knowledge of the Lord and studying the Word. We have our journey classes. We've got foundations. We have the Bible study. We've got families working on their parenting and their marriage, and they're fighting a good fight, and they're wanting to increase their faith in these areas. And I think one of the biggest promoters of doubt is when we're confronted with the revelation of God that we cannot fathom or understand. There's something about him, something that we've learned we cannot wrap our brain around. It's when the mystery of God defies human wisdom and we can't seem to make God fit in our theology. We can't get God to behave like we want him to behave. He's not doing the things that we thought he would do. He's not acting the way we thought he would act. And he's not on our timetable. And there's some mystery of the Lord, some revelation of who he is that defies our wisdom. And we can't wrap our brain around it. And he's not fitting in our box. And inevitably, doubt will begin to spring. So what do we do? What are some things that we need to remember in these seasons of doubt? There's seven, okay? I've got seven things to remember. I don't even, yeah, seven things to remember during seasons of doubt. You ready? Here's the first one. We will all encounter moments of doubt. We just will. How many of you guys have had moments of doubt in your life? Be, be honest. You're like, yeah. If you haven't yet, you will. There will be seasons. And you're like, what is going on here? Here's what Jude 22 tells us. It says, have mercy on those who doubt. To have mercy upon them. It is super easy to get judgmental, to become condemning, to look down on doubters when we ourselves are feeling full of faith. When we're on the other side of an issue. When we've squared away something in our heart and we feel confident about it and someone else is struggling on that aspect or that area or that point of theology or doctrine, it, it's real easy. We can grow impatient with people's doubts. And Jude says, be merciful. Be merciful to the doubters. That's number one. Be merciful with yourself. Be merciful to those who might be struggling. Here's the second thing to remember. I want you guys to, to dial in. Doubt is not unbelief. Doubt is not unbelief. You need to just wrap that around your heart. To doubt means to be between two minds or opinions. It's actually the middle ground between faith and unbelief. It's that place. We get a little uncomfortable with that place, especially when our loved ones are in that place. We feel a little volatile for them. We get a little anxious. We want to get a little forceful. We get a little 
little beady with the word. Doubt is not unbelief. I read this quote by a Christian scholar named Oz Guinness. He said, unbelief, unbelief, not doubt. Listen, unbelief is a state of mind that is closed against God. It's an attitude of the heart that disobeys God as much as it disbelieves the truth. That's called unbelief. It's the result of a settled choice. There's a difference. There's a difference, a big difference between struggling to believe God or something about God and setting yourself against him. There's a huge difference. Do you see that? One is doubt. One is unbelief. To doubt does not mean you're not believing. And you need to be very careful to discern between the two. It's important for you to ask the Lord, Lord, help me understand what is going on in my heart. Why do I feel divided about this topic or this, this attribute of you? Which leads to my third point. Doubt will never solve the mystery. Doubt's never going to solve it. I don't know how doubt's been working out for you, but doubt doesn't ever solve these mysteries. Sometimes we want all the answers. We are in the information age. I mean, we just can't. You know, we were talking recently. um, This generation hardly knows what it feels like to not know. You know, like random useless information that we used to just have to ponder before internet and go to bed wondering. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know who that actor was. I don't know when that movie came out. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that specific color is. Right? Before internet, you just kind of had to not know. You just had to be okay with it. Right? Now you're like, oh, I'll find out. I find myself all the time. I'm like, hold on, let me check. <laughs> I'm, I'm Googling in there. I want to know. I want the information at my fingertips. I want to know. Sometimes we want all the answers, and we want complete understanding before we're going to commit to this thing about God, before we commit to it. We want the complete understanding And while God has revealed so much to us, hasn't he? He's revealed so much to us, and there is so much we can understand, which to me blows my mind, that he even lets us see past the veil at all is amazing. And there's a lot that he has revealed to us, and there are a lot that we can understand. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that there are secret things that belong to him alone. There are things we are not going to know. Paul says, you know in part now, but then you will fully know. We're just going to have to be content with this mystery of who God is, right? We may never be able to comprehend the Trinity, no matter how many illustrations youth pastors give you, okay? The banana, the cloverleaf, ice, water, vapor. It is hard to wrap your brain around the Trinity, is it not? Or how God created everything out of nothing, or how, where was God before who created God? okay. How did he create this? And was six days of creation the literal six days? And was there gap years? Where did the dinosaurs fit in? Who did Cain and Abel marry? I know. So, come to my class. No, I'm just kidding. We may never know that. We may never know the... uh, End of things, the eschatology, 
the pre, mid, and post. We may never be able to understand how he created all of these things, but what we can understand and what we can comprehend is enough for us to rest in who God is. What we do know about God is enough to rest in who he is. He is enough. Even when these mysteries arise, think about it. If we could fully figure him out, would we be as intrigued? Isn't that what's beautiful about it? It's like he is bigger than we can imagine. Isaiah says, his thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. They're higher, way higher, way higher. You can rest in this place in assurance of who we know God is and, what he, and his thoughts towards us. Here's the fourth thing. Have courage to doubt your doubts. You got to have some courage to doubt your doubts. It's so weird, the courtesy, the amount of courtesy that we will give our doubts and the sensitivities we'll give our doubts, but not our faith. We give it a lot of courtesy in our lives. Is your doubt so compelling that it can't be questioned? It should be able to be questioned. You should question it. You should find the courage to question that doubt. When you go through times of doubt, make sure you're critical of it. Don't just let it sit there. Have courage to face it, to confront it, and to doubt it. For Christians, we can be sure, and this is so reassuring as believers, that the central truths of our faith will never be outweighed by doubt. They never can. You can't even put them on a scale. Doubt will never outweigh the central truth of who God is and of our faith. Will those doubts pester it? Yes, absolutely. They can pester, they can nag, but they're never, ever, when we learn to doubt our doubts, should our faith be overthrown, ever. Your faith won't be overthrown. Have courage to doubt your doubts. Don't just let them sit there. Here's the fifth thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. You guys know Paul told the Corinthians, this is in, in chapter 15, he was delivering them the things of first importance. He goes, this is what's important. These are the first things. These are the things that, these are the spine issues we call them around here. These are the tenets and the doctrine of who we are as believers, the orthodoxy of Christianity. These are the first things. And he goes on to talk about the atoning death, Right? and the vindicating resurrection of Christ as the most central of our faith. Those are the spine. That's the central of our faith. These are the first things. But here's what happens. Many of us begin to doubt the secondary things, the secondary issues, the details that we can get snagged up on. We call those the rib issues. And we begin to trip over them. And we get snagged and we stumble over them. And there are many, many issues in Christian faith that have had legitimate disagreements for centuries. Brilliant minds have disagreed for centuries. <laughs> I don't think any of our worry and fret's going to solve any of these either, by the way. I don't think any, you or I are going to come up with something that, bam, we have <laughs> solved this centuries-old debate and disagreement. 
about who God is. These secondary issues. Brilliant minds have been disagreeing, debating for years over these things. But do you know what all of Christianity has been united on? Who Christ is and what he did for us. Keeping the main thing, the main thing. So when you begin to doubt what you've been taught or what you've learned through sec- about these secondary issues, don't get too bent out of shape. Don't let the enemy have you focus and take your focus off the main thing. Keep the main thing, the main thing. And be okay that you're still working through these matters and some things will just remain a mystery. You may just have to know when we get there and be okay with that. Here's the sixth thing. Live according to the faith you have been given and still have. In a season of doubt, live according to that faith that you've been given, the measure of faith that you've been given, that mustard seed, even that tiny, even, hey, little faith, cling to that, what you've been given and still have. I want to remind you, doubt's not unbelief. Doubt can be, if you allow it, the bridge that connects your current faith to a mature faith. It can be that bridge that conduit from what you're currently believing to a perfect faith. That's how we're even able to do what Peter said, make every effort to add to your faith. You can do that. Hang on to that. When we go through a faith crisis, though, or that crisis of faith because of something we've learned or something that we're going through, it's hard to naturally see it that way, to see that, this doubt could lead us to greater faith. Only God could do that. In our own nature, once doubt begins to enter and infect us on this conscious level of thinking and pondering, discussion, do you know what the enemy likes for us to do? He likes for us to take that doubt and interpret it as outright unbelief. He wants you to just turn it really quick and be like, oh, you don't believe at all. That's what that is. And we don't know how to process it. We don't know how to process these doubts that can kind of stir up in our hearts. And so do you know what we think we're on? This, in, this road, this inevitable road to complete unbelief. That's exactly what the enemy's trying to tell you. You're like, oh, guess what? Because you're doubting, you are on the road to unbelief. You should just hang it up, give it up. And what happens is because we think this way, and the word says, as a man thinks, we begin to think this way, we can begin to act that way. And we allow that doubt to plague us and live like unbelievers. I've seen it t- 20 years of ministry, I've seen it time and time again. What was originally just doubt that needed just some exploring, needed some conversation, or really needed to just be laid on the altar. Just, Lord, it's a mystery. And I've seen what the enemy does and how he twists that and turns that doubt to make us feel like we shouldn't believe at all. And here's the thing. If sin wasn't the instigating problem before, if sin wasn't the problem that led to your doubt, because here's the thing, it does often. Often our sin can be something that leads to doubt. You want to know why? Because we feel the shame and the guilt of this sin. And the enemy loves to take that and make us hide and feel the condemnation. 
And we'll pray and pray and pray. I don't want to do this sin anymore. I don't want to do this sin anymore. God, help me not do this sin anymore. And because this isn't released from us somehow, it starts to nag at our belief. It starts to mushroom up these little thoughts of doubt. So if sin wasn't the instigating problem before, on this road to unbelief, it'll become a chronic problem in our lives. We begin to act like the world. How quickly our unbelief will lead to disobedience. And that leads to sin. So it's our job to encourage each other, you guys. Encourage your friends, your family. If they're in a season of doubt, encourage them to continue to live the life worthy of the calling that they've received in Jesus to repent and to believe the gospel even if they don't always feel like it. Many seasons of my life were right actions changing a wrong feeling. It was persevering and doing the right thing even when my heart didn't feel like it. Crucifying those doubts and saying, Lord, I believe, I still believe. Here's the seventh and final thing that is so common. Don't let doubt lead to isolation. How many of you guys have seen it and experienced it firsthand? Someone's doubt leads them to intense isolation in their life. You don't want to share these struggles with your friends. You may feel ashamed to admit that you have these doubts. You know, you're like, oh, they've got, they seem to have it figured out. I don't want to tell them I'm struggling with this. Or maybe there's even a sense of pride in your heart that you don't want to have to go to someone for these answers. You'd rather just sort it out on your own. I'm going to isolate myself. It's a bad idea every time. It's a bad idea. Of any time in your life that you need community, it's in seasons of doubt. You need it. You have to remember that doubt can be an opportunity for your faith to grow. It's meant to be a bridge to strengthen your faith, to walk to a deeper faith. Do you guys stand with me? It's not, we're not putting things away yet. It's just a different posture, okay? If you guys can dim the lights. You don't run away from doubt. Don't run away from doubt. Listen to me. Don't run from doubt. But you also do not have to accept that you must live with it. You don't have to live with it. You can do these things and remember these things and talk these things out in community. Surrender these things to the Lord. Have courage to doubt your doubts. Because the thing is, if, if your doubts are left unchecked, and we all have one or some, a little place in our heart that we're doubting, if it goes left unchecked, it will erode belief. It will erode. It'll come underneath. It'll just erode. But if you'll squarely face it, if you'll tackle it, it can lead you forward. You just have to be able to recognize that it will show up. It's going to show up in your life. I think it's part of the Christian journey. You have these questions that need answering. And do you know, it'll show up. Doubt shows up at the most inopportune times. It's when you are like struggling against the waves of exaggerated danger or real problems. Doubt shows up at the 
worst times. That's why we need the community around us to help us cross the bridge to that stronger faith. The enemy wants to hold you there and convince you not to believe at all. (coughs) There's a famous painting that I love by this painter, Cavaggio. You guys can put that up there. I love this picture so much because I feel like it gives an invitation for us to see Jesus and how it's just another, it's just another way, another look at his character, just like that other picture I showed. Because this is the scene of doubting Thomas that's found in John 20. And his, the other disciples had had a firsthand account of Jesus. And so they had told Thomas, hey, it's Jesus. He's, he's resurrected. He's making some appearances. And he's like, I won't believe it until I see it. And so he's called, he's doubts once. And for the rest of, you know, humankind, he's doubting Thomas. Poor guy. He's immortalized in paintings. But I love this picture right here. The invitation of Jesus to draw them in through their doubt. He says, come, draws them in. Look, he even has his hand. No, put your finger in my side. Come and experience this. That's the heart of God. He says, come come let this draw you closer to me. Let's sort these things out together. And do you know what else I love too? He's not isolated there, is he? He's right there in the middle of that community. And what's so great, those are probably the two other disciples that had given that account, and they're looking just as close too. (coughs) They're looking over the shoulder and they're saying, I'm looking too because I need my belief and my faith to be strengthened. I want to add to my faith. We can do this together. We have each other to do this. And we can pray the prayer like the, the father of the, of the epileptic son when he, Jesus was going to pray for him and heal him. And that father says this, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my doubt. Help the areas of my life where I'm not real sure. But I do believe You see that? He's keeping the main thing the main thing. But he's also having the courage to doubt the doubt and asking God. He's inviting God in and saying, bridge me. Bridge me to a greater faith. Help this be an opportunity for me to grow. Okay, let's pray together. Lord, you made us and you know us. You know what's going on in our hearts. You know human nature. You also know sin nature. You know us. And I want you to know in this room, people, you are known by God. And that is a beautiful thing. Because he loves you still. While we were still sinners, he died for us. Thank you for the atoning work of the cross and the blood that's been appropriated that has covered us, made us right and holy in your sight, Lord. Thank you for the measure of faith that you've given us. Thank you for belief. And Lord, we all ask now we, and say, we believe. And Lord, those areas of unbelief help us. 
These places where the enemy is trying to hook us and drag us down and drag us down a road of unbelief, we say, Father, we're going to stick to the main thing here. We know enough about you and your character and who you are and your word to rest, to rest in that. And we'll let those secondary issues rest. And we'll take human wisdom and we'll lay it at your feet and admit that your ways are higher than ours, that your thoughts are not our thoughts. And we can rest in that too. Help us to be in awe of the mystery of God. Help us to accept the things that we may not completely understand and have a confidence in what we do know, what you've done for us, and who we are in you. We are your children, and you are our Father, and we say we believe. We believe. Increase our faith, God. Increase our faith. In Jesus' name.